I've come to the conclusion that life is a journey of tension and paradox. Life is a journey of tension and paradox. We, we want to be emotional, but not too emotional. We want to be serious, but we don't want to be somber. We want to be friendly and caring, but we don't want to be clingy. We want to uh, be protective, but we don't want to be overbearing. Our, our lives are filled with, with living in the tension and the paradoxes of the extremes of our existence. And it's not just about life, it's about our faith as much too. Most everything connected to our faith is about tension and paradox and holding those things in balance. G.K. Chesterton said Christianity got, got over the, the struggle of, of combining furious opposites by keeping both and keeping them furious. And, and, and that's so true of so much of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as I said last week, the the answer to these tensions that we come up against, these seemingly opposite truths, is not one extreme or the other, though that's what we tend to hear from a lot of people. And it's not somewhere in the middle as if these things are half-truths. But it's both extremes. It's both and. This is true and this is true and and we just simply have to figure out how to live in the tension and the paradox of both truths. And that's why over the course of these few weeks we're, we're looking at some of those truths, some of those paradoxes and those tensions. And today one more. It is a staple of the evangelical faith that That we come to Christ and make decisions about Christ as individuals. We, at some point in our lives, we have to decide, what am I going to do with Jesus? You have to make that decision for yourself. I have to make it for me. Am I going to surrender my life to Christ or hang on to it? Am I going to follow Christ or am I going to go my own way? We make that decision as individuals. We don't come to Christ in mass. It's not as though we, you were in maybe New York City, what, 1964, when the Beatles arrived, and you're walking down the street, and this crowd of people just, you sort of got sucked into this crowd of people. Next thing you know, you're in Shea Stadium, and they're singing, I want to hold your hand. And you're looking around going, I don't know how I got here, but this is kind of fun. We don't come to Christ like that. You know, the 8th century emperor Charlemagne baptized all of the peoples that he conquered, hoping to expand the kingdom. And all that revealed is that he really didn't understand Christianity. We come to Christ as individuals. We have to make a personal, individual decision. God, God relates to us as individuals. He loves us as individual persons. That's why I wanted us to read Psalm 139. It begins, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. 
You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We come to Christ as individuals. It's a staple of our evangelical faith. And I would be surprised if any of us argue with that. But I suspect we might have a little bit different perspective about the truth at the other end. Because I've also come to realize as I read the scriptures that not only do we come to Christ as individuals, but our personal faith in Christ is proven by our commitment to the corporate body of Christ. And that's a hard thing for us sometimes to grab hold of because we tend to be independent people. I want to think about my own. I've got enough trouble worrying about my own life with Christ. I can't worry about anybody else's life with Christ. But we're connected. In the beginning part of of this section of, of Hebrews 10 that we just looked at, the writer talks about what has happened because Christ has come and he's gone to the cross. And, and he says, Christ has torn the curtain between us and God. He has broken down the barriers between us and the Father. And the result of that is that we now have intimacy with God. And we are set free from our sins and we're cleansed and we're made new and we're washed. And we have this wonderful personal relationship with Christ, with the Father through Christ. But I can't believe that the, that the cross and all that the coming of Christ means is only about our relationship with Christ. It is also about our relationship with each other. Restoring our relationships, connecting us to one another, creating us as the people of God. We have to remember the church is not a human idea, it's Christ's idea. Christ didn't just organize the church, he created the church. He started it, he founded it, it was all him. It wasn't as though he said, you know, those human beings are doing something kind of cool, I think I'll jump on board with that. It was all him, it's his idea. I'm fascinated by the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, at least some of which seems to be recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. And you can imagine at this point in Jesus' life, as he's just hours from his arrest and the cross, he would pray about things that are central and vital. This is not the time to be messing with the stuff that doesn't matter that much. And a part of that prayer is, Father, make them one. Give them the same unity that you and I have, you and me and me and them. Make them one. In the last hours before his life, his prayer is that we would know the intimacy of connectedness with each other as the people of God. I think we wrestle with that because honestly, it's a lot more demanding to think about other people's spiritual lives as well as our own than just having to worry about me. There's a lot more expected of us. And we tend to be so independent, we really don't want to mess that much with other people. 
I don't know how you, you feel, felt or feel about group projects, but, you know, most people are not all that thrilled about it. Now, I tended to, to like them for one reason because at least I had some affinity to them. One reason because I was usually one of the slackers and the rest of the group, you know, moved me along. But the other part of it was uh, Cindy and I really became friends in a group project. And out of that, our relationship grew and we got married. So I do have a little bit more positive feelings about group projects than some people. But there's something in us that wants to say, look, if, if I'm going to fail this course, I want it to be because I failed it. Not because these sluggards over here didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so you get the syllabus out and you see, and it's 50% of it is this group project you're doing. Are you kidding me? Come on. When there's no group project and everyone's grade is their own, we come to the class and we approach the class basically as it's about me. Make sure I keep up with the readings. Make sure that, that I understand what's being talked about. I'm get, I understand what's, what I'm reading here. I, I, I'm, I'm staying current and I'm ready for whatever comes. All of that changes when you get in a group. If the, your grade is contingent on what everybody in the group does, now you're starting to think, are they staying up with the readings? Are they understanding what's being talked about? Are, are they getting what we're doing here? And when you realize they're not, you give time and energy, you sacrifice for your, of yourself to try to help people come along. Because we're in this thing together. In some sense, the church is sort of like an eternal group project. You know, we're, we're all in this thing together. You know, we, we, we have to care for each other. We, we have, we're called to sacrifice for each other, to, to pay attention to each other, to be connected to each other. We rise and fall together as the church, as the people of God. I think one of the most, I don't know, difficult Frustrating scriptures for me is the first verse of the seventh chapter of Joshua. In chapter six, the people of Israel have have um, gone to Jericho. They've marched around the wall. You know, the six days. You know, I always wonder what are the people of Jericho thinking as they look down and see these people walking around the wall. And then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. They blow the trumpets, and the walls fall down. And God says to them, "There are going to be other cities that you conquer, and when you conquer those." The spoils are yours. But with this one, it's all mine. Don't take any of it. And they all obey except one guy, Achan. Achan sees some things that he likes, grabs them, hides them under his tent. And when they go to to fight the next battle, disaster. And to get to chapter 7, verse 1, it says... Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with Achan. He's very angry with the Israelites. And I read that and I think, wait a second, that's not fair. One guy stole some stuff and they all suffer the consequences. The more I've thought about that, I suspect... Somebody had to see Achan take that stuff. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, more than likely, in Israel, as, as this battle's going on, at least tens of thousands. 
What is the, what's the likelihood that he could sneak that stuff out of Jericho and get it under his tent with absolutely no one knowing? And if someone saw him, seemingly no one said, what are you doing? Put that back. We all rise and fall together. And when you get to Matthew 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples about, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they give him a number of answers. He said, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't even know what you've declared. It's right. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. What is it that the gates of hell cannot overcome? An individual Christian? No, the church. It's the church that can stand up against the gates of hell. Because we rise and we fall together. There's a scene in in the movie Gladiator, which tells the story of General Maximus. Through a series of events, he he goes from being a celebrated warrior, the favorite of one emperor, to being uh, uh, considered a traitor and the nemesis of another emperor. He comes to, to Rome not as in a parade or pageantry and wearing a, a laurel crown as he should. He's a war hero. But instead he comes in chains as a slave. And they bring him to the Roman Colosseum. And they've set up in the Colosseum that day uh, a reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. In which the Romans decimated the barbarian horde. And Maximus and the dozen or so foot soldiers that are with him are the hapless Carthagians, the, uh, the horde of people the Romans are going to fight. And they come out of this dark tunnel into the bright light of the, of the Colosseum and the cheering, uh, bloodthirsty cheers of the crowd. And they stand in the middle of there looking around, wondering what's going to happen. And Maximus begins to understand what's going to happen. And he says to the men... All right, come on, gather around. Whatever comes out of these gates, we have a better chance if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. Stay together. Whatever comes out of these gates, stay together. And what comes out of those gates is sleek and strong and swift as gate after gate opens and Horses with chariots and charioteers come racing out of them, hurling spears and shooting arrows. And a couple of of the guys with Maximus try to run on their own and they're cut down. And they get into a circle with their their backs to each other, shields up and swords ready, spears ready. And the chariots circle them tighter and tighter. Maximus keeps saying, as one, as one, stay together. As one, as one. And as the noose begins to tighten, it gets closer and closer. And then he yells, now. And they attack the chariots. And when the dust clears, every one of those Roman charioteers is dead. Whatever comes out of those gates, stay together. That's how we survive. Because the people of God, we rise and fall 
together. When you get to the end of this section of, of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There are theories about what the day approaching means. And some people think it's about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. Other people think it's about the imminent last days when, when the Christ is going to return. But either way, the point's the same. There's an urgency about what we do. Because the enemy is tightening the noose. The opposition of the evil one is, is getting closer and closer and stronger and stronger. And he says, hold on to your faith. How in the world do you hold on to your faith? Not as an individual person, but as the people of God together. As people who are committed to each other, who are standing back to back, side by side, understanding if we stay together, we survive. And meeting together doesn't mean we just come to the same church. And it doesn't mean that we think about things the same way. It doesn't mean that we always agree about what, what, how we perceive things and how we do things. Meeting together means that even when we disagree, we stay connected to each other. Even when we have differences of opinion, we still care for each other. And we're connected to each other. And we sacrifice for each other. And we actually find joy in giving up things that we love because of what other people need. That's the body of Christ. And what's interesting is the call to sacrifice, the call to give up, is the means through which we grow and mature and become more like Christ, who went to the cross, not for himself, but for us. He sacrificed everything because of our need. And he's calling us to do the same with each other. I love the way the message translates verse 24. Let's see how inventive we can be in sharing love and helping one another. Let's see how inventive we can be about connecting to each other and loving each other and being there for each other and sacrificing for each other. What if we spent time every day thinking... How can I help somebody else? How can I sacrifice something of me because someone else has a need in their life? And we started thinking creatively about ways to do that. What dramatic changes would take place in us as a body of believers and and in us as individuals? Trying to think, trying to think this week, how to image this? What, what should this? what does this look like? And and I thought it's a circle, and and the circle has a line down the middle and two sides. And on one side it says personal faith, the other side corporate faith. And you put the two together, and, and that makes that makes the whole. But as I pondered that, I realized I don't think that's right. I think it's not one circle; it's two circles. And the circle of our personal faith is enveloped in the circle of the corporate body of Christ. We still have to make a personal decision, an individual decision about what we're going to do with Jesus. Every one of us has to make that decision. 
But in the context, that decision is always made and is lived out in the context of the corporate body of believers. Because our personal faith in Christ is proven and grows and matures and becomes what Christ wants us to be in the context of the body of believers. And until we come to realize that we'll never truly experience all that God has for us and the fulfillment of what it means to be his children, we'll never truly know that until we begin to see our personal faith in the context of the corporate faith. And my prayer for us is that we will not only see that and believe that and embrace that, but that we will begin to think of creative ways to live that. Heavenly Father, as your people, as people who are here in this place today, some of us need to decide as individuals what we're going to do with Jesus. Some of us need to make the choice to surrender our lives to Christ. Many of us need to see our faith in the context of your people. Connected, loving, sacrificing, surrendering like Christ. Father, we pray that you will so bless us that we will live as you called us to live. Be your people. Lord, as we come to this table, we see here the personal and the corporate. We ask, Father, that that you would pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup, that as we receive them, we might know the assurance of our relationship with you and that we might know the power of relationship with each other in you. We ask this, Father, through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen.